Gurkha, Sweden. It's now just an archaeological site. But during the Viking Age, this was a thriving coastal community. It was founded at about 750 A.D. It's about 30 kilometers outside of uh, st modern-day Stockholm. And uh, at, its, at its height, it had about 700 souls. It's now long gone. It kind of went out of uh, existence at around 1050. So it had about a 300-year period. Uh, but it, UNESCO has labeled it a World Heritage Site. They, they view it as that important. And one of the reasons is because it has 3,000 graves. The cemeteries of Burka, and which, of course, archaeologists love to study. The cemeteries in Burka are unique amongst all Viking Age cemeteries in Sweden in this one important fact. In every other cemetery in a Viking Age cemetery in Sweden, the adult males far outnumber the adult females. Uh, in every other cemetery. And in fact, uh, Nancy Wicker, an archaeologist, she has a theory for this. She said, well, that's because the Vikings practice infanticide. And they had a bias toward boys. And so sometimes a Viking family wanted a little baby boy and got a baby girl. They would allow the baby girl to be exposed to the elements and expire. And that's why in every Viking Age uh, cemetery in Sweden, you have far more uh, males than females in the graves. Well, then what's, what accounts for burqa? It's an anomaly because in burqa you have as many, actually you have slightly more adult female graves than male graves. Well, Nancy Wicker has a theory on that as well. But here's the backstory. The backstory is burqa Sweden was the first town in Sweden to receive a Christian missionary. His name is, we now call him St. Ansgar. He was a Frankish monk from France, and he sails to Sweden, and he lands at Burka. And he brings with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he has success. The very first church in all of Sweden was founded in Burka in 831 uh, A.D. And uh, with the coming of the gospel comes, as it always does, the gospel challenges culture. And in this particular case, it challenged the practice of infanticide because the Bible teaches that uh, humans, whether male or female, are created in the image of God. Whether you're young or you're old, whether you're handicapped or healthy, you are created in the image of God, thus you have inestimable worth. And so with the coming of the gospel, as the people of Burqa be became Christians, they challenged the practice, stopped the practice of infanticide. And it's, and, it, and it's revealed in the fact that in Burqa, you've got as many, actually more, uh, female, adult female graves than male graves. Isn't that awesome? I love that story. And I tell it this morning because uh, we are talking, we're praying this week for the transformation of entire communities. Fundamental premise of, of our prayers this week is that the gospel has implications not just for the private world, but for the public as well. And so what, we are, what we're praying for this week is we're saying, God, we are praying that you would so transform the city of Anchorage that if we took a, a magnifying glass and we went around and we inspected uh, any home in Anchorage or any boardroom or any uh, school board meeting, or, or an encounter of a police with a citizen, no matter where we looked in Anchorage, we would find that it was a reflection of your heart and your will and your values. 
And that is a bold and a big prayer. And that's what we're going to be praying for this week. We're, so we're, we are three weeks into our six-week series titled Seek God for the City. Week one, we, we said, God, would you just pour out your lighter fluid upon the souls of your people so that we burn brighter? Because anytime a revival happens, anytime God does something extraordinary in a community, it starts with the people of God. And when our souls burn brighter, we pray more, we evangelize more, and cool things happen. Last week, we said, God, uh, we are praying that you would uh, break through the spiritual blindness of those who are far from God. Because we understand from the Bible that unbelief is so often spiritual bondage. It's so often the result of the evil one blinding the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the gospel for what it is. Good news for them. They cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so all week long, we have been praying, God, would you take the blinders off? Would you help people see my friends, my coworkers, my family? Help people see that Jesus is good so that they'll want him and come to faith. And so this week, we're, we're going to be praying all week, God, transform our, our communities. Transform the public as well as the private realm. Now, the biggest obstacle in my, I think that the biggest obstacle to us praying this week with boldness and with passion is, uh, is a false dichotomy that many of us have bought into between the private and the public realm. And it goes like this. It says, uh, th here's this, I will call it a lie. And the lie says, hey, uh, faith is a matter for the, uh, it's a private matter. And so it's okay for Christians to get together and talk to each other about, hey, here's how we should live. It's all right to promote Christian values within your, in the context of your Christian community. It's okay to have your, if you want to follow Jesus and his teachings, that's great. That's, that's your choice. It's a private thing. We're not going to mess with that. But understand that there's a, this whole public world, this public space and it's not appropriate for you Christians to push your values, uh, your morality, your belief system in, upon the pub, in the public realm, right? And so, uh, you know, the Christian, Christian faith should not inform uh, what goes on in our schools, shouldn't inform our laws. No, that's public space. That needs to remain secular. It needs to remain untouched. Uh, and unfortunately, this... This is the dominant thinking of our day. This is the, the zeitgeist in our current culture. And unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians have swallowed it. And as a result, we have Christians who are ambivalent about, frankly, unsure. Should I want, uh, should I want the, the, the values of Christianity reflected in the public's realm? I, I don't even know if that's a good thing in our democratic society. And if you... If you believe that, if you have doubts about that, you're not going to pray with boldness and passion. And so what I want to do today, my primary goal today, is to go to Scripture and demonstrate from Scripture that Jesus Christ makes claims upon the public sphere as much as he does upon the private. And that God wants us, his people, to um, promote his values and promote his claims upon all society. Now, before we get there, though, uh, open your bulletin, if you would. 
You have a nifty little chart in your bulletin. Bless, fill in the blanks if that motivates you to follow along. In 1971, Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade, and um, Francis Schaeffer, founder of Labrie Institute, they identified what they called the seven cultures, uh, I'm sorry, mountains of culture. Others call them the seven domains of culture or uh, seven spheres of society. And they are media and arts, business, education, family, government, healthcare, and religion. And Bill Bright and Francis Schaeffer they, they said to the Christians of their day, listen, God, God wants to transform all society. And God has strategically placed you in a sphere of influence, an important cultural mountain. Please be a change agent for God in your sphere of influence. Um, and they were, they were reacting to, rightfully so, uh, a, a withdrawal mentality. Some, many Christians had said, you know, basically, culture is going to hell in a handbasket. We're going to withdraw into our, uh, into our safe space. No, no, no. Let's go. Let's transform culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so t- this week as we are praying, uh, some, of you are in, some of you are in business. Some of you are in health care. Some of you are in education. Some of you are uh, taking care of your kids at home. Some of you are in government, uh, the legal system. God has put you in an important sphere of influence. And so pray uh, with, with uh, boldness and passion for that sphere of influence. And then ask, be asking God this week, how do you want me to be your change agent uh, in, in my sphere of influence? Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. This is the first uh, biblical text we want to jump to. So here's Daniel, a Hebrew who has been uh, taken basically as a spoil of war from his hometown, Israel, and he's now residing in Babylon. Babylon is not a Christian nation. It is a secular nation. Uh, It is a godless nation. Daniel has the opportunity to address Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, not a Christian ruler. And so here's what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. If you you think it's acceptable, if it fits your value system, uh, if you want to, you might want to consider breaking off your sins not what he says, is it? He says, uh, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, first thing I want to know is his tone. His tone is important. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. As we, as we confront culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't do it uh, belligerently, we don't do it uh, with aggression and a and a critical mean spirit. We do it lovingly. We do it wisely. We do it with grace. The Bible says, "Speak the truth in love." But here's here is Daniel telling uh, the most powerful secular ruler in the world: there is a God who is watching what you're doing, who will hold you accountable for how you behave. Uh, a God who uh, 
label some added, uh, some behavior sin and some uh, righteousness. And you might want to get your personal life and your uh, kingdom in line with the righteousness of God. Daniel is asserting God's right upon the public uh, space as well as the private space. Now turn over to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, uh, here's New Testament describes uh, the purpose of the secular government. Romans 13, we'll look at the first five verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good. You'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Uh, first off, Paul's describing government in its ideal form. This is the way it is supposed to function. Of course, it doesn't always function this way, unfortunately. Uh, number one, uh, the Apostle Paul is saying that... Uh, Government officials are servants of God. Isn't that interesting? Wait a second. That's the public realm. Those, they're secular uh, leaders. What are you talking about? Actually, the, the Bible in 2 in, uh, Peter refers to it as a ministry. Government officials have been given a ministry by God. Now, servants have masters to whom they are uh, accountable, right? So to whom are government officials going to give account? God. Because God put them in their position of power, their positions of influence, to do something, something very specific. And if, they, and if they do it well, God will applaud them. And if they don't do it well, God will hold them accountable. Well, what, it, what are they supposed to do? What is their ministry? Well, uh, Paul puts it very simply. Basically, it's this. Uh, they are to punish evil and applaud good. It's that simple. Government officials are executing their God-given ministry well when they punish evil and applaud good. And so uh, the way God has designed uh, government and leadership is he says, look, in society, when, if the government officials, by the way, government is never an entity. Government is always people. It's individual people making decisions about what is right and wrong, what should be suppressed and what should be promoted in society. And so individual, when individual people are making the right choices, then in society, wickedness gets stamped down, it gets suppressed in society, and, and good is promoted, it proliferates. And, and so when government is doing its job well, society flourishes, right? What a great place to live. I mean, if that were perfectly lived out and everyone who has power in society uses their power to suppress evil and promote good, society flourishes and it's awesome. And that's what God intends. 
That's what he wants. God always has our best in heart, at heart, doesn't he? Well, here's the, here's the problem. The problem is uh, people's moral compasses can get off. People's moral compasses can get off. So imagine a society where the people in power get confused about what is right and wrong. In fact, Isaiah decries this possibility in, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. The prophet of God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Do you realize it's possible for people's moral compass to get so off that they, they, they look at evil and they say, that's good. And they, that was pun over here. Uh, they look at good and they say, that's evil. Now what happens when they have power? Then they say, what is, what is actually good in the eyes of God, they're pushing down and seeking to suppress. They punish. And what is evil in society, they're like, come on, let's have more of that. And when that happens, society, oh, that's terrible for society. And it, it has happened throughout hi human history. And may I say that in the United States of America, we have never before had so many people in power who are so morally confused. In the United States of America, we have people who wield power, who are suppressing righteousness and promoting wickedness, and they think they're doing a good thing. Now, before we go get all upset about them, the, 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 what I'm really trying to say here is that we Christians, all this does is just point out our, uh, our responsibility as the church to be in the public realm, informing the public realm. Because here's the deal. Uh, if, if Who better than God's people to be informing the public space of what, about what is truly right and wrong? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Listen to this. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Here's the image. It's, think about like the Greek pantheon, which uh, the roof is upheld by the pillars and the buttresses. And so what God is saying is, look, the church holds truth up in the world like these pillars do. Uh, who other than the people of God are informing the world about what God thinks is right and wrong? That is the responsibility of the people of God. It's the responsibility of the church. And if we don't do it, if we withdraw from the public realm and we say, oh no, we're just going to talk to each other, then we've just... We've handed the public space over to somebody else's view of right and wrong. And I think, we've, I think we have done that here in the United States, and it hasn't, it, it's not helping. <laughs> it's not helping. Finally, let me just remind you of uh, Jesus's, uh, the height, how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right now, if you take a, a, a magnifying glass to any nook and cranny of heaven, uh, you will find it done uh, uh, perfectly in accordance with the heart of God, the will of God, the values of God. Jesus is saying, I want my people to pray that it's done on earth just as it is in heaven. 
Jesus told us this week of prayer for the transformation of societies is in, that's what I want you to do. This is absolutely in line with my heart. I want you to pray that, that there will be such a transformation of your city that when you take the magnifying glass, you'll see families and classrooms and uh, police stations and boardrooms reflecting the heart and the values of God. And that won't happen if we, the people of God, say, oh no, we've got to just stay in our private world. When we pray that prayer, let us, let us make no mistake, what we are doing is asserting the right of the Lord Jesus Christ, his rights upon the whole world. He is not Lord of the private realm, he is Lord of the whole realm. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, whether people acknowledge him as Lord or not. It is right for us, the people of God, to promote his rights in the world. Don't shy back from that. Don't let the evil one uh, lie to you and say, no, 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 that's not appropriate. That's inappropriate. No, that is honoring to God. Let me conclude with a story about a hero. Janani Luam. Janani Luam was the Archbishop of Uganda from 1974 to 1977. He was when, as a young man, he wanted to be a teacher. He trained to be a teacher at the age of 26. In 1948, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and then he felt called into the ministry. And so then he went on and, and, uh, to a theological college. And when he graduated from a theological college in 1952, uh, he was ordained as a, uh, an Anglican priest in the Church of Uganda. For about a decade, he was a priest. Then he became a bishop. Uh, in Uganda, and then in 1974, he became Archbishop of Uganda, Burundi, and a couple other um, smaller African states. Only the second African to hold that high position. Now, that's impressive. He's an impressive guy. But what is most impressive about Archbishop Luam is the fact that he was willing to confront the wicked regime of Uganda with the claims of the gospel. Idi Amin, in 1971, Idi Amin had taken power in Uganda, and he was a wicked ruler. And so here's Archbishop, he becomes Archbishop three years into Idi Amin's reign. And you know that he's got a crisis. He, he's thinking to himself, because Idi Amin's so bad that you oppose him politically, and you often disappear. And Archbishop Bloom, he could have, bought, he could have said, oh, no, no, I'm just gonna just, we're just going to talk to Christians. And that's the but no, he he begins to criticize Idi Amin, and in 1977 he wrote a formal letter of protest to Idi Amin, outlining uh, how Idi Amin's government was out of line with the will of God. The next day he was arrested. The day after that he was murdered. Idi Amin's government said, "Oh, he died in a car crash," but eyewitnesses later said, "No, he didn't. He was taken to a police station, and along with two other cabinet ministers." He was shot and killed. The two other, all three of them were shot in the chest, but only idiom, uh, I'm sorry, only Archbishop Lewin was shot in the mouth. Idi Amin's government was making a statement. You Christians, you be silent. You stick to yourselves. You can, you can, criti you can critique each other, but don't come into the public space and tell us how to run our lives. That's the heartbeat, and that is the lie of the evil one. We represent the Lord of all the universe. And our attitude is kind and loving 
and gentle, but we speak the truth. And we assert the claims of Christ upon every nook and cranny of our city. That's what we're praying for this week. Let's pray it with boldness. And at the same time, ask God, uh, what do I need to do? What do you want me to do practically to be your change agent here in Anchorage?